Matthew 17 and stand with me. Last week we noticed in verses 1 through 13 that Jesus chose three men among his disciples to take up on the Mount of Transfiguration and to show his glory. And here we see them coming down the mountain to a, a greatly different scene. In verses 14 through 23, this is God's word for us today. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Please pray with me. God, we ask you for your blessing today. That you would come upon us. That you'd you'd help us to hear your word. You'd help us to see Jesus Christ. You'd help us to see the grace of the Gospel written here for the disciples, but also the grace that you give us every day by your providence as you call us to believe and trust in You, God. Increase our faith and help us today. I pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would help, help us today. Help me, God, to forget myself and to preach Your Word faithfully, God. And please, take this weak offering, God, and multiply it for Your people and for our blessing. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Me and Erica on Saturday nights uh, have been watching the last couple of times this show. I think it's called the, the Kingdom of the Great White Wolf or something like that. And it's about white wolves uh, near the North Pole, 500 miles from the North Pole. And a part of this story is these newborn cubs born only with like three months of daylight. How they're going to prepare their young to survive throughout six months of total darkness in the wintertime. Okay? And you see the training that happens with this mother. And as the day, the days get shorter and shorter, this mother takes her cubs out for further hunts and trains them more extensively. And that's a natural thing that we see throughout our human lives. But we also see it in Scripture. That God, by His providence, prepares His people for tasks that they will later face. I mean, if we think about it, think about Joseph. As he was sold by his brothers into slavery, he's made the, the head of, Potiphar, of Potiphar's house. He's made the head of the prison when he's put in prison. And all of that to prepare him to be second in command in Egypt. The more we could speak of David, as David was trained as a shepherd in his early life to shepherd his people, Israel. And here we see the apostles of Jesus Christ. 
where Jesus, entering into the last days of His ministry, as the days are getting shorter and shorter before He's going to die, and His presence is no longer going to be with Him physically on this earth, Jesus Christ prepares His disciples. And I believe the central idea of this text is exactly that. Jesus prepares His disciples for His death, resurrection, and ascension by exposing their deficiency of faith. By exposing their deficiency of faith. And this passage should expose in our hearts likewise something. It should expose our lack of faith and encourage us to grow day by day in our trust for our God and our Savior who has died, been buried, and resurrected. And so today, I just want us to know, for you to know the first point, that God exposes our lack of faith for our good, not for our harm. It's a grace of God to expose our lack of faith. And I want us to be convinced that it is our duty to grow in our faith. So, as we look at this passage, we should first know that God exposes our lack of faith for our good. Now, as we've already mentioned, we should put ourselves a little bit in the context of this chapter and notice the great contrast that is given. These three men with Christ were just on the mountaintop where they saw Christ glorified before their very eyes. Their faith had become sight in front of them and greater than anything they could have imagined. Not only was this Christ sent to be the last prophet of the people, but He also is the fulfillment and the culmination of everything that God ever wrote. He is the zenith and the pinnacle of all of God's saving purposes. And as they came down this mountain, no doubt filled with wonder and excitement of what they had just seen, they encounter an entirely different scene, don't they? They come upon, notice, a crowd of people. And this crowd is gathering around the disciples perhaps because of their failure to heal this boy. They come to a father that is greatly distressed that their son, his son, is so demon-possessed and so seized by these seizures that he often is thrown not only into the water, but into the fire. They come to a contrasting situation here where Jesus, the King of glory and grace, after He just assured His disciples of who He is, here He rebukes almost every crowd and every uh, demographic that is present in this scene. And so, as we see this great contrast and we read through this passage, the thing that troubled my heart for the first couple of days is just what are we to make of this passage? Perhaps it's my own history growing up in Pentecostalism right after I was saved for a couple of years, but this text has gone to many, many times to show um, what we should think about demons or demonology, that there are certain demons that are just harder to cast out than others, and that's the primary thing that's taken from this text. Or we need to put prayer and fasting, if you have a King James Version that's added in, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, that that's the way that we properly do very difficult exorcisms in the church, and that's pointed at as the chief idea of this text. And certainly, when we read through Mark's parallel, especially in Mark chapter 9, we see that this, this young boy 
and his suffering is given more space than any other demon possession in the Scriptures. And so the, the question that we need to ask is, what do we make of this text? And what I'm proposing to you today is that our context gives us the interpretive key of how to interpret this text. What do I mean by that? I hope you remember that Jesus has entered into a new emphasis in His teaching ministry. He was teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God from chapter 4 midway through chapter 16. But notice in chapter 16 and verse 21, He shifts His emphasis. And from this point to the end of the book, or rather I should say until His death, Jesus is focused on teaching His disciples one primary thing. Notice, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is is focusing everything on this. Like the wolf mother, again, that knows that winter is coming. Christ knows that His death is coming. And everything He's doing is focused on this point. And this is great help to us. Great help to us. This teaching ministry of Christ, this new emphasis, is going to frame everything that He does until His impending death. Now, in, in this preparation, there's difficulty involved, isn't there? Whenever we're preparing for something, there's difficulty. And I, I'm reminded of Pastor Albert Martin. He tells a story about discipling people in this inner city church. And there was this young man that was a new convert that was coming to him. And his faith was alive and it was new, but he was terrified about making decisions. And he loved his pastor, and he would call his pastor about almost everything that he did, terrified he's going to make the wrong decision about something. And Albert Martin did something that is somewhat unconventional, but I think wise. He decided one day, he was sitting in his office, and this young man's name came on his caller ID. He's going to avoid the message. He let it go to voicemail. He listened to the voicemail. This man was terrified about this new job that he was going to take and whether he should take it or not. And Pastor Martin didn't call him back. Why did he do that? Well, he's trying to grow him in his faith. He needs to go to the Lord about this. He needs to learn and develop the habit of trusting in God through this. And and similarly here, these disciples that are, are at a critical point Christ notices in their heart they have a deficiency of faith in Him and in the Father eight months before His crucifixion. And here we see their their faith, their lack of faith exposed. Their serious deficiencies that were made. And like a good physician, Jesus uses this opportunity to graciously teach them and expose what's in their heart. In other words... Jesus prepares His disciples by graciously exposing their lack of faith. Now, as we consider the lack of faith that's exposed here, the primary emphasis is on the disciples, but I want us to see that everybody is rebuked in this section. Notice the different parties that are involved here. Now, the strongest words are not for the disciples, but I would contend for the unbelieving crowds and the scribes. Now, scribes aren't in our passage, but if you'd briefly turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We see a much more vivid picture given 
in the Gospel of Mark. In verse 14, notice what Jesus comes upon. Coming down the mountain, it says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Him and greeted Him. And He asked them, What are you arguing about with them? So, we see the picture here. Not only do they come upon a crowd surrounding the disciples in a great moment of embarrassment, not able to perform this sign, but the scribes here, the unbelieving religious leaders, had taken opportunity to pounce on this, right? They take an opportunity to see... You claim to follow Christ. You claim to be endued with power from on high and that He's the Messiah and you can't perform this miracle that you're called to perform. And Jesus reacts to this unbelief in Matthew 17, I believe, with heartbreak. Listen to His words as He sees the scribes gathering around, arguing with His disciples, pouncing on them to terrify them. Jesus, in verse 17 says, oh faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to bear with you? How, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, we might be tempted to read that as looking at the disciples, but never when Jesus calls out this generation is twisted and perverse is He talking about His people, but only unbelievers. And furthermore, if you'd give me a little leave to turn to Deuteronomy... Christ is probably pronouncing somewhat of a covenant curse on those who would not believe in His name. Notice Deuteronomy 32, and in the Greek translation of this, it's even more clear. But notice in verse 5, as Moses sings this song to Israel, he says this about apostate Israel. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children. Notice, because they are blemished, they are a crooked and twisted generation. And then in verse 20, and He said, I will hide My face from them. I will see their end, what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. And as I understand it, the Greek says, in whom there is no faith. Christ is probably drawing from these two texts and saying, you are the twisted and perverse generation that has no faith in Me. You scribes that are arguing with my disciples and trying to tear them down, how long do I have to be with you and bear with you? And some commentators even take this as Christ looking forward with anticipation when He will be set free from His earthly body and rejoined to it in the resurrection with His Savior, or with His God, I should say. So, we see the scribes and the Pharisees The unbelieving crowds rebuked for their lack of faith. And Christ shows here that they've they've fallen away from gospel faithfulness. And they take any opportunity to not believe. How many signs have they seen Jesus Christ perform? How many things have they witnessed with their own eyes, but the one time they see His disciples fail, they say, oh, this is our opportunity to have reason and excuse not to believe the gospel. And Jesus rebukes them. But I want us to see and notice He rebukes them for their good. As everything that Jesus Christ does, He shows His love for sinners. 
Christ is not content that anybody within His hearing is going to go to hell unwarned. And He tells them here that they're in great danger for not believing in His Word and in the Gospel. And this rebuke is given to them. And Christ shows it's not a deficiency in Himself. Right? He calls the young man to Himself and rebukes the demon easily. Showing the unbelievers that this has nothing to do with me. This has to do with my disciples. Okay? And so, we see this warning, this rebuke, is not only for the unbelieving. It's for the disciples. After this, the disciples gather to Him privately. And they ask Him, why, why couldn't we cast Him out? And that's a good question. Because if we go back to Matthew chapter 10, we see that Jesus gave the disciples authority over everything. They had authority to raise the dead, to heal every manner of sickness, to cast out demons. And the question they have in their mind is a good question. What changed? What changed here? And Jesus says it's because your little faith. It's because your little faith. Now, it's interesting that Christ says it's because your little faith, and then he says, but if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, right? You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll be moved. Christ is, I really think, saying, you're coming dangerously close to, to unbelief in your sins here. And we can get to that point in our Christian lives. Although we have true saving faith abiding in our hearts, sometimes we can degenerate to the point where it's, it's almost indistinguishable from the world at some point. And I believe that the disciples at this particular point were at this level. And Jesus shows them that this is not an impossible feat, and He diagnoses them with a great deficiency in their faith. A great deficiency in their faith. This is what's hindering you from doing the things that you're called to do. And He implies that they would desire to attain greater degrees of faith by the grace of God. Now, all of that is to show how the lack of faith in His disciples and in the unbelieving crowds is exposed. And while this is helpful in every area of Christian circumstance to have our lack of faith exposed, it's be, I believe it's peculiarly helpful here preparing for His death. And the illustration that comes to mind is if a soldier goes to basic training and he's training to shoot his weapon at a target accurately, his drill instructor may come up to him and correct him, saying you're anticipating the shot and therefore it's going too high and too low. And there might be some urgency in that. But there's even more urgency if that same instructor says, and you're going to the front lines of a war next week. You need to take care of this deficiency in your training. You need to take care of it. And the disciples are put in a hard situation, a dark providence by Almighty God, so that they might feel their compulsion to grow in faith. Okay? That's why Christ exposes their lack, so that they would feel compulsion to grow in it. And God does graciously the same thing for us, doesn't He? Unbelief is a great sin in the eyes of our God. Any kind of unbelief. Now, totally lacking belief is the chief sin of all of mankind from Adam until now that we don't believe that God is good. We don't believe He's loving. We don't believe the words that He says. 
And we should not buy into the lie of our culture that unbelief is just uh, it's intellectually virtuous. Right? That I'm just skeptical. And I need to be proved in my own reason that these things are true. That's not what the Word of God has to say about unbelief. Rather, in 1 John 5.10, we read, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And even more in the Gospel as it's proclaimed throughout the world. And wicked men in their hearts say, I will not believe it. It has to be proven to my empirical sights and senses before I would believe it. The Word of God tells us this is a great sin and that the world will be condemned for it. Unbelief is a great sin. And it's the common factor in the world, but there's remnants of unbelief in each and every individual Christian heart until we reach glory. This vile disease, it still clings to us in some way. And I would ask you, church, how often do we doubt Him? In simple things of life, in our, in our finances, as we deal with our children, as we go and seek witnessing opportunities to share Him, how often the disciples and their lack of belief becomes our testimony. That we just don't believe that God's going to work in this any longer. We don't believe that God's going to take care of us day by day and provide what we need. But rather, we don't think that He'll work at all. If we're honest. If we're honest. And this is common to all. And I want to tell you, church, that there's never been a man, woman, or child besides Jesus Christ who is not plagued by the sin of unbelief daily. It's not mixed somewhere in our heart a lack of faith. But God exposes this vile disease in us in order to kill it by degrees. It's always going to be with us, but God desires for us to grow in it. And there's many examples of this in Scripture. Proverbs 17 tells us that God is in the business of generally exposing our sin in our hearts. Notice in verse 3 of Proverbs 17, The crucible is for silver. The furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests the hearts. The Lord tests the hearts. Now, why does God test our hearts? Is it for His sake? That He would know what's in our heart. Say, the Lord knows all things. It's for us to see these things. Now, He also does this to individuals. And if you'd like to turn with me, please do. 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And there are many examples, as you're turning there, in Scripture of God exposing sin in the hearts of His people. But I think this is one of the clearest examples that we have throughout the Old and New Testaments. 2 Chronicles chapter 32. This is Hezekiah. And we have the Babylonians coming and, and seeing the things that are in God's house. And I want us to notice what is said about him in verse 31 of 2 Chronicles 32. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that he had done in the land, God left him to himself. That is, God withdrew a little bit of his persevering grace here. That's probably a bad word to use. He he withdrew a little bit of himself 
to let Hezekiah's sin show through in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. And we can see that he not only does it individually, as in Hezekiah's case, but in Deuteronomy, we see that God does this corporately to his people, and he still does this to his church. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me, that God, again, the point that we're seeing is that God is in the business and He delights in exposing our sin, not to bring us down, but rather so we'd lift up our eyes to Him and trust in Him. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 2 through 3, notice this. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Notice that He might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not and he humbled you and let you let you hunger and fed you with manna of which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God and then in verses 15 through 16 we see this grace repeated he says about God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you with the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and detest you to do you good in the end. God is in the business of exposing the cancer of unbelief that naturally exists within our fallen hearts or our our fallen flesh in order that He might excise it out of us. Now, I'd ask you, has He exposed your unbelief? And how you deal with one another in your marriages, and how you deal with the church, and how you think about the Word of God, and how you think about God Himself? Are you tempted to be distraught and to despair over that fact that there's unbelief in your heart? Well, Christian, you should repent of it. But you should not end there. You should thank Him for it. God exposes it in you just like in Deuteronomy to do you good in the end. He loves His people. He doesn't want us to stay where we are. Rather, He wants to lift us up. Just as Hebrews 12 tells us, God disciplines us for our good and His grace. I'm going I'm to read that passage to us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 We see God's grace in exposing sin in our hearts and in disciplining us in general. Notice what the Apostle says here. Verses 10 and 11. For they, that's our natural fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I want you to think about these apostles and how true it was. How painful would it have been for these men who have given up their very lives and possessions to follow the Savior and they're confronted with this great deficiency. You're very close to unbelief here. You have a serious deficiency in your faith. This would have been traumatizing. It would have been hard for these men to hear. But did not God do them good in the end? These same men 
are the ones that oversaw the writing of the New Testament. These same men spread the Gospel throughout the known world in their time, trusting in God alone, as Psalm 62 says, to do the work. These same weak men saw their deficiency and God by His grace grew them in faith. But first, He exposed it. It is good to be disciplined by the Lord. This passage shows the great mercy of our Savior not to leave us without the knowledge of our sins. Not only does He expose us for our good, but the implication here is He demands us to grow, doesn't He? That's the second point I want us to look at today. That we must be not only convinced that God shows us our unbelief for our good, but we must be convinced that we have a duty to grow in our faith. Now, to give a little bit of doctrinal background to that. A duty to grow in our faith, that's for several good theological reasons. And the first, and the most primary, is that faith gives glory to God in a very peculiar way. Faith gives glory to God in a very peculiar way. What do I mean by that? Well, first, if we think about our faith in relationship to the things we do in our religious duties, faith is a necessary part of good works, isn't it? And I don't mean necessary as in it's really important. I mean it's absolutely necessary. That is, as Romans 14 tells us, that if we have no faith and we go about doing religious deeds, it's abominable in the sight of God. It's sin in God's sight to do anything outside the bounds of faith. God receives glory when we do things in faith Because it's a necessary part of the Christian experience. But not only that, faith is the opposite of works. Faith is the opposite of works. While it has a necessary component in good works, it's the opposite of works in general. And don't we see this in Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 11? And many places throughout Scripture that places faith on the totally opposite extreme as works. Faith is not something that earns wages, but receives freely from God. And faith gives a peculiar glory to God in this particular way because faith is the opposite of works and necessary for works. And because of this, faith gives praise to God where praise is due. Faith gives praise to God where praise is due. When we have faith in God going about doing works, it gives praise to God because we acknowledge in ourselves by our faith that we could never do it on our own. It's not in my flesh. I cannot do it. And like the disciples, I would fail in every way if not for faith. If not for God working through us. And we see this example, I think, powerfully in the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In this very familiar passage, we see Paul in verse 7 says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Notice, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying instead of looking to myself and trying to muster up the fleshly strength to do something, rather, God's grace is so sufficient towards me that I'll boast about my weaknesses, trusting that God will do the work through me. That God will do the work through me. And faith, and faith alone, gives praise to God where it's due because faith is nothing of us and trusting entirely that God will do the work. And, and lastly, faith gives glory to God in a particular way because it's the only path to true Christian contentment. It's the only path to true Christian contentment. And Paul tells us this in Philippians 4. That to trust in the Lord and to believe that He can do all things through Him that strengthens Him, it's in the context of contentment, isn't it? Man, let's turn there. Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 4, rather. Philippians chapter 4. And we'll just constrain ourselves a little bit to verses 11 through 13 for time's sake. Again, what we're looking at here is that we need and we have the duty to grow in our faith because we have the duty to give glory to God. And only faith gives glory to God in this particular way. Faith being the only path to true Christian contentment. Notice, Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. And I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Isn't it our duty, church, to be content in the Lord and what He gives us? That's only possible through faith. Believing that He is taking care of us. Believing that His eye is upon us. And so, we should see that the Scripture compels us to grow in this faith. And taking everything said before, this is the logical outcome to what we're talking about. Are we called, and do we have the duty to do good works in faith? We'd say, of course we do. Do we have the duty to trust God for our sanctification, our justification, and our salvation apart from our works? We say, yes, of course. Do we have the duty to give God all the praise and the glory for everything? Do we have the duty to be content in the Christian life through faith? And we'd say, yes. And what I want to say to you is if all of those things are true and they're impossible without faith, the logical conclusion is we are compelled by Scripture to grow in that faith. If that is the root in which all of these fruits grow from, then we must grow in it. It's necessary for every part of our Christian life to grow in faith, and so we must grow in it. And this is the clear testimony of Scripture. Don't we know that, again, in Hebrews chapter 11, this is what the Apostle wants us to see when he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. This isn't just saving faith in a way that attaches us to Christ with no evidence in the external life, right? 
It's not just passing our days as if we had no belief, and all the while having a a small belief in Christ. But if we read through Hebrews chapter 11, testimony after testimony of the Old Testament is people trusting in God to do everything in their lives. Trusting Him to bring them through the flood. For Noah to build the ark. For Moses to forsake Pharaoh's household. For Jacob and Isaac to bless their sons and to believe the promise to come. All in this chapter are commended by living in faith to the Lord. And we are brought back to that testimony, this great cloud of witnesses, to grow in our faith and to trust Him. And to trust Him. And this is our display of thankfulness for our salvation is growing in faith to our God. He's done it all. He's laid a hold of us. And nothing that we've ever done contributes to that. But part of our act of faithfulness, thankfulness because of our salvation is growing in our, in our faith. In our faith and our trust of our living God. And the question that we have to ask is how do we do this? How do we grow in faith? Well, I would say simply, the way that we all grow in faith is only accomplished by looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. To looking to Him for all of His power and all of His strength, for His example and how He lived. And the first thing that we must all do in church, I say this because it's deeply on my heart at all times, before there can be any growth in trusting God in our day-to-day experience, we must be convinced that God is gracious towards us. We must be convinced in this reflexive act of faith that God not only sent His Son to die, but that He died for me. That God is gracious to me, and and we must have a growing conviction that the grace of God in Christ is for us. And if we don't believe that, if we're not secure that the offer, the free offer of salvation in the cross is for us, we're going to be faltering all the days of our life and believing that God's going to work in us day by day. Don't we see this in Romans 8.31, the famous passage, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do you see the priority there? We must first believe that God has been given His own Son for us to believe the Gospel testimony no longer doubting in order for us to grow in the faith that He's going to be with us day by day. This is a prerequisite for growing in faith. And convinced of God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ the next thing we must do is call out to the Lord. Now that might seem simple to us, but that's what's given to us in our passage, isn't it? In Mark chapter 9, the parallel passage to this, we've heard many times, immediately the father of the child. Notice, he takes the rebuke of Christ to be talking to him as well, right? And he says, cried out. He doesn't just say. He cried out. I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, if that has not been a cry of your heart at some point in your Christian life, I I, I doubt that you have true Christian experience. 
If you're not mixed with unbelief and doubt in your heart, I don't know. I'm skeptical of that. I, 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 I hesitate to be stronger in my language than that. But also, in Luke 17.5, the disciples are told that they have, to, they have to forgive their brother many, many times. And their prayer to the Lord is increase our faith. Right? It's a good scriptural testimony. It's a good scriptural example that when we see unbelief in our heart, not only to go to the cross and be convinced that God's grace in Christ is for us, but to call out to Him. Repent of your unbelief. Say, help my unbelief. I'm ashamed that I don't believe you more than I do. You have been good and faithful to me every single day of my life without exception. And still, daily, I struggle whether you're going to help me in this particular situation. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Grow me in faith. Grow me in faith. And this ought to be a prayer of ours. Whenever we experience that in our hearts, we we should not shove it away. But again, confess it to the Lord and ask Him to grow us because He is our head. Jesus Christ not only is the author and perfecter of our faith, okay, He is the one from whom faith flows to us. Because we're united to Him, faith comes to us. And only by abiding in Him, going to Him for grace, do we receive greater measures of it. Okay. And lastly today, I would compel you to be devoted to God's people. Be devoted to God's people. If you read through the Old and New Testaments, you'll see very clearly that God communicates grace to communities of people. Now, He does it to individuals. Of course He does. But He does it primarily in community with God's people. He asks us to come to church, not just so that we would be together and hear sermons, but that we would sharpen one another, that we'd admonish one another in psalms and singing and hymns. He calls us to come together, that we would have a growing conviction of our sin as a corporate group of people, that we'd gather together on the Lord's Day in the afternoon and talk about how the sermon or how their Bible reading throughout the week has convicted you to pray together, to hear preaching, to take the sacrament. God often works in these ways. And the question I'd ask to you, church, is can you afford to put yourself outside of God's means of grace? If these are the ways that in particular He has promised to grow His people, can we have a good conscience about staying away if we're not providentially hindered, of course? I would say no, we cannot. We cannot. We come together to publicly look upon Christ and Him crucified. And He grows us in our faith as a community together. And God's pleased to do that. And so, in conclusion today, we should know that when unbelief or any sin is exposed in our hearts, we should have a change of mind towards that. Instead of only mourning about it, we should see it's God's goodness and grace to us. If we have been united to Jesus Christ, we should know that He does this for our good so that we might go after Him. So we might repent and grow in Him. We are no longer under the covenant of works that would tell us that we're condemned because of the mixture of unbelief in our heart, but rather we would go to Christ and also be convinced of our duty that we are to grow in our faith. Out of faith comes hope and love. 
charity and all these things, and we are we're duty bound to look to it. And we only do that by looking to Jesus Christ. The means that He's given to us and His person in heaven ever giving us measures of the Holy Spirit to grow in faith. And one of the ways He does that is through the Lord's table. As we see it today, we see that Jesus Christ willingly for sinners, for His enemies, willingly gave of His body and blood. That He took the covenant curses upon Himself and He shed His own blood that we might be forgiven of all of our sins and all of our iniquity, including our unbelief. And as we take this in our hands and in our mouths, we should be assured that Christ died for me and that He is willing not only to give Himself, but to graciously give us all things because He's given us Him. Brother, would you come forward?